0: This Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Hughes Network Systems. It's time to expect more from your network. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters Defense with Mimi
1: Gerges.
2: This is Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news trends and topics that matter to the business of government. Today, we focus on defense. I'm Mimi Gerges. The White House has sent several new nominations to the Senate for confirmation. One of those nominees is Eric Christopher Raven for the position of Undersecretary of the Navy. Raven served as the Majority Clerk for the Senate Defense Appropriations Subcommittee. He also was a National Security Advisor for the late Senator Robert Byrd. The Defense Department has released new information about the state of competition in the defense industrial base. This new report comes after the White House released an executive order last July about promoting competition in the American economy. DOD's report discusses the current state of competition and recommends actions to diversify and expand the defense industrial base. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin has appointed Eric Evans as the new chair for the Defense Science Board. Evans currently serves as director of MIT's Lincoln Laboratory. As the chair of the science board, he'll lead a group of distinguished members to provide recommendations about science, technology, manufacturing, and acquisition. Evans previously served as vice chair of that board. China's space programs are growing. And for the US to compete and stay ahead, Congress must provide bipartisan support and guidance. That's according to former Congressman Mike Rogers. He is co-chair of the National Security Space Program at the Center for the Study of the Presidency and Congress. Congressman, welcome to the program.
1: Hey, thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here.
2: So what do we know about China's civil space program? They have their own space station in orbit. Is it as advanced as the International Space Station?
1: Uh, easily and, and they're planning their next generation of space exploration uh they have been able to launch and get, and land a craft on the back side of the moon by the way something we haven't done and, and nor have our allies done they're planning an, a, a, a moon base station uh, between the chinese and the russians both strategic adversaries to the united states they are making a significant investment in space and space exploration uh, and here, here at home, we kind of are, are dithering around. The second part of that, if I may real quick, is that they've decided that space is contested, meaning it has military implications for them. They understand that our GPS systems that we all know and love, both military and civilian, you know, that app that gets you to Starbucks in the morning, uh, is all GPS based, which is space based they've made a determination that they can take out those satellites and those constellations in order to hurt the united states if we ever came to conflict so they have this dual purpose they're going to make sure that they militarily control space uh, and that they're leading the space exploration race and so this is why this issue is so so important
2: you know i wanted to go back to what you said about the lunar program because nasa has plans to return to the moon in 2025. are you saying that china's lunar program is ahead of ours
1: well what they're planning to do is they're going to have a base station there that they uh, jointly run and operate with uh, with the Russian Federation so uh- I can't say technologically, they're, you know, leaps and bounds ahead, but they're certainly where we are, and in some cases a little better. And remember, you get better at these things the more you do them. So the more you engage in space or launch, you know, they have new launch vehicles, they have new space vehicles that they're developing and putting up into space. The more that they do that, the better that they're going to get. And so it's really important that we continue the pace of our space investment and space exploration as well.
2: So there's legislation in Congress called the America Competes Act that is specifically about China. The Senate included competition in space in that act, but the House did not. Do you know why it wasn't included?
1: You know, I, I think there's some differences of opinion on what the language is and, and how you would how you would take care of American space enterprise. And so that part was okay and those differences I guess are okay. My point, and I think the senator's point is, listen, this is great, but if we don't do this together and we don't do it quickly, we are falling behind. And so we think that language is something they should have worked through and gotten done. And all of this is happening fast because all of the information flowing into the, to the Senate and the House is, hey, guess what? We may be losing this race. Uh, And it's only because of us. We are standing in our own way. And so that's why this call for bipartisanship, the House has to stand up and take a lead on civilian space, commercial space as well. Uh, And the Senate's got a good start. My argument is that bill is moving. Let's try to fix it there and now so that we can continue this push uh, to be leaders in in what really now is a new space race. Remember that we used to be in a space race with the Russians, that kind of went away. We dominated space. We never thought it was gonna be contested. Well, it is now contested, uh, and we don't have that same kind of bipartisan vision and aspiration to kind of win that race.
2: Well, Congressman, I hear you on on the bipartisanship, but there's not a whole lot of that happening right now in Congress. Are, Are you optimistic that this can actually happen?
1: Well, my wife says it's a genetic defect, that I am so optimistic, (laughs) but I do think that people are the weight of the information that that should be uh, at their disposal shows very clearly that we have to, this is a sobering moment for us, Uh, that this technological race that we used to take for granted and say, well, we're always going to be 10 years ahead of our adversaries, that gap is closed. And so now we have to reorient ourselves to this speed to innovation, uh, you know, rap, uh, you know, rapid deployment of space. We need to do it a lot. You, know, you wanna keep flexing those muscles in space. And so I, I do think at some point uh, that members of both parties are gonna say, okay, this is so serious. You know, we can stop arguing if we can turn the lights on in the morning. But We better start uh, debating together about how we move forward to make sure that we don't get behind. You know, when you lose a a race like this, very difficult to catch back up.
2: You know, you said in your op-ed, quote, we're right back where we were in 1957. Of course, that was Sputnik.
1: Right. Yeah. I mean, that was the race. And remember when we saw that you know, our our government writ large and the American people said, holy mackerel, we can't do that. We could not have done what the Russians did in 1957. And wisely enough, the government uh, and both Republicans and Democrats said, hey, this is, we can't let this happen. We get behind on that uh, and allow the Russians to dominate space. uh, That's gonna have horrible implications for not only our national security, but our economic security going forward. Both of those proved to be true but what we did is came together and launched this huge moment of we are going to have, you know, we're going to put a man uh, uh, in space and a man on the moon. We're going to beat the Russians. And that kind of fervor, excitement, energy and aspiration needs to come back.
2: Well, very briefly, Congressman, what do you tell your former colleagues in Congress right now?
1: Uh, stop arguing and start doing some things. (laughs) Uh, There's really important work to be done. We have to get it done, and we have to do this together. This is really the only way we're going to win this race.
2: All right. Well, Congressman Mike Rogers, nice to talk to you. Thank you so much. Coming next, what the American military posture is lacking in the Indo-Pacific, straight ahead on Government Matters, a look at the current posture and potential solutions. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. To counter China's growing military power, increasing resiliency of American forces and bases in the Indo-Pacific should be a priority for the Defense Department. That's according to Stacey Pettijohn. She's a senior fellow at the Center for New American Security. Stacey, nice to meet, nice to see you again. Nice to see you as well. What's the problem here? What makes the current U.S. military posture in the Indo-Pacific vulnerable?
3: There are a few issues. Uh, The first one is that it's concentrated on a relatively small number of bases, which means that there are a lot of forces that are in proximity to one another, which makes them vulnerable. The threat, of course, is from Chinese ballistic and cruise missiles. Uh, Beijing has invested a lot of resources in developing a very robust arsenal of very accurate missiles that can hold it for at risk all US forces in the region. Um, and bases uh, because they don't move, they're fixed, uh, normally lots of concrete, uh, big buildings are easy targets. And the United States has been in a situation for the last uh, several decades since the end of the Cold War, where it hasn't really had to worry about a threat to its bases in this way. And that's changing, not just in the Indo-Pacific. We saw this in uh, in Iraq, too, in the Middle East with the Iranian attack on al-Assad and um, Erbil.
2: So you write that to increase the resiliency of the U.S. military posture. The, the key is to distribute those forces across more locations and then putting in place a system of passive defenses explain that
3: sure so typically when we think of defenses we think of active defenses and these are systems that intercept an incoming threat or attack before it hits you so you can think of the patriot system or thad which are surface-to-air missiles that are fired and will um, actually hit an incoming missile and protect you But passive defenses are things that minimize the damage of attack um, by making you hard, uh, you know, hardening different facilities so they're less likely to cause damage. You distribute forces around so it's harder to hit them because they are spread out so you can't, with one bomb armed with some munitions, um, take out a lot of aircraft or people um, with one shot. And so these steps uh, improve the ability of the target to absorb the strike, recover, and resume normal operations. So then if passive defenses are you know, more affordable,
2: they're still effective, why haven't they been used more?
3: There have been a number of uh, problems that have inhibited, um, I think, investments in this area, and a lot of them are somewhat political. From the services perspective, um, they're really sort of loath to invest a lot of resources in facilities and pouring concrete. Um, they prefer to spend the money on their priority weapon systems, aircraft, ships, tanks, or missiles. Um, And those are the things that are near and dear to them and uh, important. And the defenses just end up being at the bottom of the priority list and get chopped uh, repeatedly. You also see that Congress sometimes can be very reluctant about spending money on overseas bases. They'd rather invest money at home where um, they have their own constituencies. That seems to be changing a little bit. And hopefully, the Pacific Deterrence Initiative is one of those efforts where Congress really focuses it so that they do invest and make sure that the department makes the posture investments that are needed there.
2: Well, the the administration did release the uh, 2021 Posture Review. What do you think was
3: missing from that? Um, I think there was a lot missing from that. It it ended up being a process that I believe was intended to largely be corrective, that the department had found that a lot of the normal processes that it had in place to evaluate its posture had been discarded in the last administration. And then they wanted to reassure some of our allies like Germany, where the Trump administration had made promises uh, or Uh, had indicated that it was going to withdraw a number of forces from there and they wanted to reverse that. So it was really a corrective move and reestablishing processes so they could more uh, fully evaluate posture going forward. But in the end, they raised a lot of expectations and then didn't deliver much new. It was just sort of going back to the status quo. And I think that is why, um, you saw allies and partners in the Pacific and some, uh, defense policy watchers in the United States were disappointed with it.
2: So when you say that uh, the U.S. should distribute bases more so that they're more defendable, um, what areas of the globe should the Pentagon prioritize for those military bases? What countries in in particular?
3: Um, Right now, I think if you're looking at the Pacific, there are two countries that um, are prime candidates. The first one's Australia. Um, The AUKUS agreement with Australia, the UK and the US uh, was focused on nuclear submarines, but um, in the long run, it's looking to increase integration of defense planning and to strengthen ties there. And it mentioned um, that uh, posture was one of the areas where that might um, happen. And the United States has talked about this with Australia for a long time, especially with respect to large aircraft, and it hasn't actually materialized. So I think that is one place where um, it it would be advantageous from a military perspective, and the politics are right. The other one is the Philippines. Um, We've been, the United States has been trying for a long time to. Um, gain access to some new facilities there, and they did with the Enhanced Defense Cooperation Agreement, but that kind of stalled out under Duterte with some of the um, tensions between the two countries. And that now you see that the relationship has been renewed. Um, They approved the Visiting Forces Agreement, so they're allowing U.S. forces to stay. And I think now is the time to actually begin to implement the EDECA and to make improvements to some of those facilities and to use them. All right, well, Stacey, thanks very much for being on the program, appreciate you being with us.
2: Coming next, thousands of innocent civilians have been killed by U.S. military drone strikes. Still ahead on Government Matters, assessing the DOD's efforts to mitigate civilian harm. We'll be right back. Last month, Defense Secretary Austin directed the department to create an action plan on civilian harm mitigation and response. My guest has conducted an independent assessment of DOD processes and policies relating to civilian casualties resulting from U.S. military operations. Michael McNerney is Acting Director of the International Security and Defense Policy Center at the RAND Corporation. Mike, welcome to the program.
0: Thanks for having me, Mimi.
2: So there was a military drone strike in Kabul last August that killed 10 civilians, including children. What went wrong?
0: Well, there were several problems with that strike, all of which uh, related to issues that have been identified in the past. Um, So two examples, um, misidentification. Uh, In other words, the military uh, conducted an accurate strike, but against a person uh, who they thought was a terrorist, who was actually... An aid worker. Um, and the uh, second problem was a lack of situational awareness and inability to um, to see what was around the, the area that strike the children and other civilians moving towards the vehicle. Um, so uh, these problems have been identified in past uh, investigations, and some uh, improvements to techniques and procedures have been identified in the past. But those lessons have never been institutionalized, and so uh, the, the what looks like an isolated incident uh, is actually part of a pattern of, of problems at the department.
3: So let's
2: go back to what the current state is. So what's the process that DoD follows? I would assume it starts with a report that civilians could have been harmed after an operation.
0: Yes, if there's an allegation, or if the military uh, sees for itself that there's been an incident. Uh, The commander can order either an initial assessment, which is just the basic facts, or they can do what's called a CCAR, a civilian casualty, uh, it's an assessment report, civilian casualty uh, assessment report that gives a little more depth. And then they can even go into a full investigation if they decide they need to really understand not just what happened, but why it happened.
2: So in your report, you say that, you know, most efforts at DOD, and rightly so, focus on preventing civilian harm. But you add that it's important to improve DOD's post-strike assessments. Why?
0: Well, you know, DOD is famous as being a learning organization. Um, They uh, have an infrastructure and a culture to improve, uh, whether it's through training, professional military education, exercises, Um, They try to shoot better, they try to move uh, better, they try to communicate better. But when it comes to civilian harm, that cycle of learning isn't there.
2: Found that uh, DOD undercounts civilian casualties. Why is that and what can be done about it? Well,
0: the reason I think they undercount, I'll give a quick example, just in 2019, uh, in Syria, the estimates of civilian casualties, um, using pretty rigorous methods by a, a, conflict monitoring group called Air Wars in the UK, they, they estimated between 460 and 1100, um, civilian casualties and DOD estimated, uh, 21.
2: So and who's so, right though? It's a hu- <laughs> it's a, that's huge a difference. huge difference. Yes. So who's right? Um, and, we, and, and why is, well, we, why is there such a big difference?
0: we looked at both procedures and, uh, we found the Air Wars, uh, mechanisms, their, their methodology was, was very rigorous, but DODs, uh, had some flaws. Most importantly among the flaws was that they tend to discount information from external sources. And so, especially when they are relying a lot on airborne assets to see what's happened, um, they, they, they work pretty well in terms of, um, out in the open or uh, if, if they see something uh, related to a vehicle, but if it's in an urban environment or within infrastructure, um, they have a hard time uh, seeing what's going on, you know, basically in a basement or in, inside a room. And so that's when you need external sources of information or an on the ground investigation. And uh, we found that the military tends to discount those external sources. They don't trust them, they're skeptical, and they have a bit of an adversarial relationship at times with groups that are trying to uh, report on these incidents and so you get uh, another problem, uh, which is confirmation bias. Um, so if the commander who ordered a strike, ordered that strike because they thought there were no civilians in the area. After the strike, they're going to assume that there were no civilians there, even if they hear something to the contrary. So they're gonna think, why should I invest uh, my scarce time looking for evidence that's not there? And so uh, they they tend not to believe what they hear because they wouldn't have ordered the strike in the first place if they thought there was gonna be an incident like that.
2: And what about the reporting out and disseminating results of investigations so that there are lessons learned? How well is that handled now?
0: Well, it's, it's been very cons- inconsistent in the past, so it depends a lot on the personality of the commander. So uh, some commanders see uh, this reporting out process as important to maintain relationships with the, with the local community, maintain relationships with these external stakeholders, and to help their own force improve. They see it as a learning opportunity by reporting out what's happened and sharing the information. Um, other commanders, uh, Uh, haven't made that a priority, uh, not necessarily hiding anything, but just focusing on other matters. And the people that may be in charge of collecting that information we found are often uh, junior people, understaffed, uh, don't have a lot of training. And so so then the reporting comes out very sporadically, if if at all. Um, And we even found examples where an investigation would be conducted uh, and the person or people involved in the incident itself, never got the feedback from the investigation into their own incident.
2: All right, well, Mike, the the deadline for the DOD action plan is the end of April. We will follow up again then. Thank you so much for joining us. If you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's on our website at govmatters.tv. And tell us what you thought about today's program. Send us your comments on LinkedIn. You can follow us at Government Matters Media. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at eight and ten thirty on WJLA twenty four seven News and Sunday mornings at ten thirty on Seven News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Mimi Gerges.
0: Stay tuned for an interview with our podcast sponsor, Hughes Network
3: Systems.
2: I'm here with Tony Bardo, Assistant Vice President for Government Solutions at Hughes. Tony, welcome. Can you start by just telling me what Hughes does for the federal government?
4: What we do is provide connections. We connect the dots, meaning we use a number of various technologies to connect federal agencies, their locations, their people in ways that are not traditional, uh, meaning that In the absence of terrestrial ground uh, infrastructure that was working, satellite was really critical.
2: All right. Well, Tony, thank you so much. Nice chatting with you.
4: Thank you, Mimi. Nice chatting with you. Thanks for
0: listening. Our Daily Show is produced by Catherine Roloff and Drew Friedman. Our Managing Director is Jerry Foley. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our Web Editor is Beatrix Haddon. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.